I think that a lot of my interest in culture has come from a sense of identity and potentially you could see it as an identity crisis in a way. I think I am what's called a third culture kid. Yeah. So I, my dad is British, but he's lived in Hong Kong since mm. he was six, right? My mom is Macanese, which is uh, from Macau, so Portuguese-Chinese mix, but she's lived in Hong Kong her whole life. I've lived in Hong Kong my whole life, but of course I don't look local Chinese, right? I'm not local Chinese, I'm a quarter, I guess, Chinese, but I look predominantly white, Western, right? Yeah. So I feel entirely like I'm from Hong Kong. There's nowhere else that I would call home because both my parents grew up here, I grew up here. I feel like a Hong Konger. But of course, I am not always seen as a Hong Konger because I don't look like a local Hong Konger, if that makes sense. So I'm constantly being asked, oh, where are you really from? And this is a question that all third culture kids will yeah. struggle with because... Um, I feel like I am really from Hong Kong, but what they mean is, where are you really from? Like ethnically, I guess, you know, I don't mm. look like mm. I'm Chinese, so where are you really from? And if I say British, I don't feel connected to England in that way because I only ever lived there during university. Yeah. I, If you ask me where in England I was from, I would not be able to say. Because mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you're not from there. I'm not from England, right? Interestingly, I was born there because my parents went there and then had me born. 20 days later, I came back to Hong Kong. So yeah. it was really just like a, a passport run. But, um, <laughs> but no, I mean, because they wanted us to have a British passport because they're British. Well, my dad is British. Um, so there's this complete divide. So I think a lot of my interest in Hong Kong culture stemmed from this need to understand it more in order to feel like I was more part of it and integrated. Yeah. And rugby came into it because rugby is really what integrated me with the local culture a lot because 99% of my teammates are local Chinese. And huh. a lot of our training sessions are run entirely in Cantonese. That's how I learned Chinese is from my rugby teammates, just from speaking with them. You know, when we go for meals, it's we don't go for a Western meal. We go for hot pot. We go for, you know, at the start of every season, we have like bison, which is, you know, with the, the pig and incense. And it's like a ceremony to start the new season. There's lots of ways in which rugby introduced me and integrated me into Hong Kong culture, which I think just fostered my love for it and my need to understand it more all the time. Through my book and, and through Sunset Survivors and the walking tours and things that I do, I'm never professing to be um, entirely knowledgeable of Hong Kong culture. I'm not teaching Hong Kong culture. What I'm doing is trying to help other people that want to integrate more. And if I can build a bridge between those that don't know and those that know Hong Kong culture, then hopefully we'll have more people feel more at home in Hong Kong like I did when I learned more about it. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Like when I see you, every time I see you, I feel like, I can be a bit more Hong Konger because of her. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah. No, seriously, this is this is, this is a feeling you, you 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 give me. Like this is, and it's very profound because um, I'm from Russia, mm. from Vladivostok, and uh, I moved to Hong Kong just seven years ago. We're just about to get our permanence. Uh, hopefully, Congrats. hopefully soon. Yeah. <laughs> um, we lived in China for a while, uh, not not for long, and then in Hong Kong, and uh, I was longing for home. Uh, Far East of Russia is um, a territory which was colonized just two generations before. So people arrived there, start living there. But I, when I was growing up, there was zero history, zero connection to a place. Mm. Um, I remember this this feeling of, I'm like around 15 or 16, and I remember I live here. I have no idea why we live here. 
it doesn't even look like our land. We almost like a military farpost in a somewhere else territory. Oh, right. And, and and Chinese will tell you exactly that. They will say like you're a military passport yep. in our territory. <laughs> <laughs> it's Manchuria. Um, but then if you go a bit deeper, you will learn that Manchuria is not necessarily China as well. And Manchuria took over China. Mm. So there's a lot of like who took over whom and at which point. You mentioned identity crisis. For me, I think it happened many times. Yeah. I don't know how for you. It was one moment or it was many no, moments? No, it's, it's multiple times. You know, I can remember everything, moments in primary school, secondary school, even now, every now and then, you question where you feel like you're from or other people question where, you, where you're from. Yeah. And it does make you think you're somewhere in the middle. And only recently has this term, third culture kids, become more known. And it almost enables you to put yourself in a new category because before you just didn't fit any category and ultimately I don't feel like we all need to be in any category I don't feel the need to label anything mm. but at the same time it can make you feel more like you have a community and a place and, a, and you know what you can say you know every time someone says where are you from I have this moment in my head where I go okay what story do I say do I give them the full breakdown or do I just say one thing and hope they stick with it or am I going to get the dreaded question oh but where are you really from or so and I think every sort of third culture kid in Hong Kong has that debate oh, everywhere in the world um where yeah. you, you know you think okay what answer should I give here but there's been lots of instances yeah where I've sort of questioned it but it's nice to have this new term and know that there are other people in the exact same category as myself and it's not always like me. I'm a third culture kid in that I've lived in Hong Kong my whole life, have parents of different nationalities, but they've lived here, so I feel Hong Kong, right? Mm. But I don't look like it. But you also have people who've, whose families have moved every year, every two years, and have lived in so many different countries that they no longer know which one is home, yeah. right? And perhaps none of them are the, the country of their passport. Um, that's another thing. Uh, I find it very interesting that the... There's a lot of sort of Indian Pakistani community in Hong Kong that have lived in Hong Kong their entire lives. Mm -hmm. uh, they've been to local school. They they speak absolutely fluent Cantonese Mandarin. They're so ingrained in Hong Kong culture, and yet they will never be seen as as 100% Hong Kongers. You know, people always ask, "Oh, where are you really from?" Yeah, and they're like, "Well, I guess you want me to say Pakistani or whatever it may be, but." They're from Hong Kong. But they also, like many of them, Parsi people. So they're not even from Pakistan. Exactly. They're from the Persian Empire. And exactly. this country doesn't exist anymore. Exactly. So they are Hong Kongers, right? Yeah. Why must we question it? And it's funny because in a lot of other countries, you wouldn't, you wouldn't question someone if you met somebody in um, England who looked ethnically Chinese or maybe, you know, and they were speaking in English and talking about how they've lived their whole lives in Manchester or whatever, you wouldn't be like, yeah, but where are you really from? You know, that would just not go down well. But for some reason in Hong Kong, it's still okay to ask people, oh, but originally, yeah. where are you from? Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, but I think a lot of that is to do with the language. So like if I'm, I can speak Cantonese, but it's not perfect. So they can tell that I'm not a native Hong Kong Cantonese speaker. So then they, oh, where are, you, where are you really from? So it's very difficult, which is why I always advocate trying to learn the language more. I think that is just a key factor in feeling more connected to your own culture or the culture that you believe yeah. that you're from. When, when, you, when you start talking about certain culture, I was thinking there's so many different versions of certain culture, right? As you said. Massively, yeah. Like you... you, you you grew up in Hong Kong, you're very, very connected to Hong Kong. Some people grew up in many, many different places. And then what you're doing look like you investing in a culture, right? And 
and I think it's, it's works with any relationship. Like if you invest in a relationship, you build this relationship. If you mm. want to feel at home, you need to invest in a place, whatever it is, you mm. call in home. And this will make you more of this place. It's, you will feel at home and you will know more about the place and you will actually co-create this space, right? So through you, so many people like myself, learn about Hong Kong a bit more mm. and feel a bit more at home in Hong Kong mm. because I know Hong Kong culture. Yes. And when it's assumed by default, I think this is where um, I wonder if, if this is where the problem coming from. Because when we when we grown up and we know the language and we assume that, that this is my culture, I see so little interest often to to actually really understand what is this place, how it's come together. As I said, like when I was growing up and my body was stuck, uh, far east of Russia, I thought as though there's some cultural connection, but there's zero connection to a place. And there's very little interest in the, even the history how we come mm. there. Like uh, for many reasons, political reasons, people didn't want to talk about their ancestry. Yeah. I, I just remember, like, I'm 20 years old and I have this question, and nobody can answer. Like, who we are, what we're doing here. So I think for me, what connects somebody to a place is not so much history in the normal sense of you know textbook history, learning you know the dates and the the different wars and battles that led to what the country is today. For me, it's the stories of people that have lived there through over time, and that's why I focused on stories. So I went around talking to all of these old Hong Kong people to get their opinion about how they've seen it change and the kind of things that they used to do when they were children and how they grew up. I think it's because when I was young, my mom would always tell me stories about what she used to do when she was young and, mm. you know, because both my parents grew up here, they would tell me, oh, we, we used to go to this place in Sai Kong and we used to go on a boat here and go to this island and explore the island and my brother and I would also go and do those things and, mm -hmm. you know, most people were in shopping malls and things like this. <laughs> we were running around the rocks, like trying to find the smoothest rock we could or building a dam in a stream and for me this was my parents' way of connecting us with the Hong Kong that they grew up with and they loved, you know. So I think sometimes for me, I feel more connected to the history of a place through people's stories and through, like, the physical acts of, of doing the things that make me feel connected to a place rather than necessarily reading about the history of it. I think it's important, too. I love history. I'm a bit yeah. of a history nerd, so I also read that. But I don't feel like reading words on a page will connect you to something as much as physically going out and doing something which connects you to the place. Yeah. You went in every shop, right? And you tried the services and you actually talked with these people directly. Yes. And this is how you wrote your book about Sunset Survivors. Exactly. So just a quick sort of premise on it. It's 30 different interviews with craftsmen and women, everything from face threaders, knife sharpeners, bird cage makers, everything. So for... For every interview I did, I, I either tried the service or bought something small from the shop to have a better understanding, also to encourage them to let me do the interview with them, but generally to have a better understanding of what was going on. I mean, one of the more iconic uh, examples of this is um, under the Canal Road Bridge in Causeway Bay. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're these little old ladies, and they have these shrines that they're sitting I at. Do. These shrines, yeah, and yeah. they're called villain hitters or Dasiu yeah. Yun, right? Mm -hmm. And what they do is they you can go there and you can take the name or a photo of somebody that you really hate, and then they can put a curse on that person, yeah. right? And perhaps lift a curse off you if you feel like someone may have put a curse on you. And it's this very old-fashioned and traditional sort of ritual that these people are doing yeah. and have done for many, many years and they're continuing to do today. And yet, you know, I had never, I'd seen them plenty of times, but 
I had never stopped to really understand or watch what they were doing. Mm. Um, you know, I think we're all guilty of this. Uh, every time we go to Central, we may walk past the shoe shiners outside the MTR. But how often do you really stop and ask them questions? How often do you really find out a little bit more about them? Perhaps when you're getting your shoe shine, do you really talk to the person and ask them about their life and their experience? Probably not, right? That is what I tried to do, break down that wall. And it's kind of like an anti-Hong Kong thing to do because Hong Kong culture is sort of like, you don't normally talk to strangers and things like that. Oh, in this sense. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's just a cultural thing, but I try to break that down. And actually, I think once you do start a bit of a conversation, people are very happy to talk about their experiences. And I think they appreciate talking about their their skill or their practice, whatever it may be. You know, as soon as you, the birdcage man started talking, he was telling me all about growing up in Hong Kong and swimming in the sea in Meifu, where he used to live, where he still lives. But now, you know, the sea that was once there is now reclaimed land, and, he, and what he once swam in, it does not exist anymore. And he, you know, it was so interesting to hear those stories rather than just look at a person blankly, buy something and walk away, you know? Yes. It's a human connection. Yeah. And I think that's what makes everything worthwhile, you know? I think a lot of people are experiencing that, that now that everyone's having to go through quarantine and spend time alone, you realize how important it is to have social interaction and connections with other humans. Yeah. yeah. You know, I love tea, and uh, when we moved to Hong Kong from China, um, in, in, in Guangzhou, you have this whole area. Hansen, when I used to go for tea, and it's massive, and it looks in specific way. Tea shops look in specific way, and I was used to that. But when I moved to Hong Kong, my first impression was, oh, there's nothing here. This is it. Because I didn't saw what I expected to see. Yeah. So I had some specific like imprint, which I loved. And I was like, okay, I will go back to, to Fansun. And I was going back to Guangzhou, taking train regularly to buy my tea. And because of that, I didn't connect with uh, Hong Kong tea culture. Mm. And uh, later, um, I was passing by this shop many, many, many times. And seeing it, and seeing it as an outsider, as like, oh, tea culture in Hong Kong is so poor. They just sit in there. There's no no customers. There's like few, only few teas on on a shelf. Mm. I would even n not even go there. Yeah. And then recently, my my perception of this changed, and I engaged and I start talking, and it's absolutely fascinating. And I'm like, oh my god, what I was doing? Like, why I was not engaging for mm. three years? They doing this one tea, but they are doing it really well. They roasting it in Hong Kong. There's a ton of history. It is gorgeous. Yeah, I do like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a charcoal uh, roasted oolong. Yeah, usually oolong doesn't look like this. Ah, usually oolong, it's, it's, of course, it's, it's one of the legit ways of doing it. Yeah. But more uh, common uh, way today will be very green. And this mm. one, charcoal roasted. Also high, very high quality and smells amazing. Mm, it does, this is what yeah. they produce in Hong Kong. So for me, I had this very embarrassing moment recently when I look at all of that and said, okay, I'm the person who's very proud to be like intellectually curious and interested in culture and all of that. I just did exactly the same thing. I believe is not the right thing to do, right? I, was, I had like my mold for something yeah. which I liked and I was dismissive about something amazing without even checking out, like, mm. without even walking in and sitting down and talking. Part of it is language, yes, but I never really learned Pudumha well, so in China I was just walking in and gestures just, just, just mostly. Yeah. So I did the same here. I started learn, learning Cantonese now, but only now. Yeah, with the Pimsleur app. Yeah, I just, I just downloaded <laughs> yeah. it and oh, cool. uh, brought the course and was... I, I, I don't know if it will work well, but I'm running and listening. Nice. Um, we'll see if, if it will work together. Great. But,
But I think what you're saying is is very typical. I mean, a lot of people do that, and I mean, it's difficult to take something in when you think you know it as well. Exactly. In a sense. And yeah, I think that's why a lot of people ask me why is there a Guaymoi? Why is there a, a white girl essentially uh, writing a book about Hong Kong culture? Right, and mm. it's not meant in an offensive way. It's just really why you know. Um, but I think for me, what I always say is sometimes it takes a slightly outsider's perspective to see what is interesting about something which you might take for granted you know i see the extraordinary in the ordinary for a yeah. lot of other people whereas so a lot of my local chinese friends they were like oh, i didn't even think that industry was interesting i didn't even realize that um that was unique to hong kong mm. i know i've never stopped to talk to the uh, traditional scales maker i just always assumed that was normal you know they don't quite realize um just because you take it for granted the same way that you in your home country and, and i don't know where i would be put but anyway <laughs> you know you don't always realize these things are special and unique to a certain place and it's only when somebody points it out somebody that hasn't seen it before or hasn't learned a lot about it does it suddenly trigger this interest because you're like wow that is actually unique to hong kong no i haven't spoken to them before and then so sometimes I get local Chinese people coming on my walking tours and at first, you know, they think, oh, I know Hong Kong culture, so let's see what I find out. And actually those are the ones that become most interested in it because they've seen these things throughout their lives and it's been a part of their culture and their mm -hmm. upbringing, but rarely have they really connected to it and, and learned about the history of it, the uses of it. And you, you suddenly have this spark of like, wow, I had this guy cry on a, on a tour once <laughs> because um, he was about 20-something years old, he was a student at a university in Hong Kong. And we went and we stopped at the little old lady that she's in her late 80s and she makes the traditional weighing scales for that you often see in wet markets or yes. herbal tea shops and things like this. And on one side you have the, the metal tray, on one side you have a weight and the weight gets, you can slide it along a wooden pole, uh, a wooden rod and mm. balance it out, right? Mm. And these kind of scales have been used for hundreds of years for everything from silver, gold, uh, opium, um, you know, uh, and today more likely fruit and vegetables and things like that in the wet market, right? <laughs> um, but also herbal medicine, herbal tea, things like this. But this guy, he stopped and he cried because he hadn't seen one of these types of scales for a very long time. And he said that his grandma used it all the time and when he went to his grandma's house he would see her measuring all of her vegetables and things with the scale at home checking that she hadn't been you know conned by the wet market people I things like I was this. Doing this a lot yeah as well. and uh mrs ho the the lady that we were visiting she was telling us that she does that too and you know the reason why she continues to run this shop is not because people still need these scales you know um it's not a lucrative business. It's it's definitely a sunset industry. It's it's fading from Hong Kong. She does it because her ninety year old shop is the very last memory of her father that she has. Mm -hmm. Her father used to work there. She started working there when she was twelve years old. She continues to work to sort of keep up the legacy of her father, right? And this guy just broke down because he realized that his grandma's use of these scales was very much like this lady's love for her father. It was this attachment to old Hong Kong culture and he realized that it was slipping away and maybe his grandma using the scales was the last person that he would ever see really using these scales for real, you know? Mm. And I think it was this realization that it wasn't just some weird thing that his grandma did, but it was this slice of old Hong Kong culture that would, would die with that generation. 
is it necessary? Is it necessary for them to, to go away? Like, what, why we even assume that it's like, it's half to sunset? Why? I think it's different in every country. You get other countries such as Japan who really value their old sort of uh, ancient crafts and skills and they really um, pay a huge attention to it and really celebrate it in such a way that it will be protected and it will, you know, it's recognized and people will continue it. Generations will follow their families to upkeep this skill, right? Hong Kong, I don't think, puts so much love and celebration on these old crafts. Success in Hong Kong is seen as really financial success or doing better than you thought that you could have or something like this, right? So for every single one of the interviews I did uh, with people making birdcage makers or bamboo steamers or making paper effigy art, all these kind of things, I think all but maybe five, I would say, all of them said that they were incredibly proud that their children had gone to school, gone to university, and were now going to become businessmen and women, lawyers, uh, IT workers. There was a lot of IT technicians and things in that mix. Um, which is fantastic and for them that was the measure of success that you know these people that I interviewed had worked so incredibly hard their whole lives so that their children did not have to follow the same difficult lives that they mm. had to go through you know they don't want their children to be making bamboo bird cages uh, one bird cage every two months to make a minimal amount of money to work extremely long hours to struggle to pay rent to struggle to get through life you know they were incredibly proud that their children had a solid salary coming in, that they could take care of their whole families and take care of their grandparents and everything. This was very important to them, and that was the measure of success. There was only a few craftsmen that said, I'm not, like the birdcage man is the one I'm thinking of, he said, I'm not sad that the business will die with me. I'm not sad that my children don't want to continue this business. He's like, I'm just sad that the skill of birdcage making will be lost from Hong Kong forever. He said when he was young, when he was 12, he started making birdcages under two masters, and he was the apprentice, and he... You know, he loved learning from these two masters. He worshipped them. You know, he really was in such admiration for them. Mm. And then as he got older, he was really excited for a time when he was able to be the master and he could teach an apprentice. Yeah. But he said, nobody has ever come forward and wants to learn from him. Because, I mean, people want to learn for a day. People want to take a few workshops with him and things like this. But nobody has ever really been an apprentice to yeah. really, he says it takes about 10 years to become a master of it. And no one is willing to put in that time, especially now. If you've gone to university, you're not going to throw everything away to become a bamboo birdcage maker and make a minimum wage, you know. A lot of the time, people think I'm trying to save these industries. I'm trying to save the memory of them. I'm trying to save legacy of them and what they've contributed to Hong Kong culture because I don't think you can force anybody to go into them. Perhaps we can start workshops. Perhaps we can get some recognition for them, some appreciation for them. But you can't go to schools nowadays and say, everybody stop your education, let's all become birdcage makers. But there's something very interesting for me. If it takes 10 years and dedication and human connection and presence to learn how to make a birdcage, it means that it's very sophisticated technology. It is sophisticated, but unfortunately, that sophisticated hand craftsmanship can be replicated by a factory. And one factory in China can pump out hundreds of bird cages in the same time that he can make one. And, and for practical reasons, they can do the same. Yes, and th- they can charge much less for it. Yeah. One bird cage made by the bird cage maker in Prince Edward can cost thousands of dollars. One bird cage from on Taobao 
which looks pretty much exactly the same, can cost $100. You know what I mean? It's really your market is just gone once these people can produce it for cheaper. Yes. There's a book, uh, Low Tech, by Julia Watson. She's showing that inside the cultures and there's very real technologies which are very sophisticated. Mm. And if you take them out of the context and look at them as um, what is what is a skill defining to be able to do a birdcage? Mm. What are the insights? I wonder if there's still a lot to learn. I think... I think so. There's a lot to be learned from it, but not much money to be made from it. And unfortunately, <laughs> that is just the main problem. <laughs> I understand. People can't afford to put 10 years worth of practice into something which is never going to make them any money. This could be incredible inspiration for an artist. This could be incredible inspiration for someone down the road later yeah. of a technique. This also could be how we build, you know. Do you know um, what? Yeah, if you, if you put it that way, then I think there's skills to be learned in that sense, not in the direct becoming a birdcage maker sense. But And there have been organizations that have learned from these people, have taken a few of the skills and applied it to an artist's um, sort of work. You know, various exhibitions and, and organizations that kind of worked with the themes of Hong Kong's old crafts and trades. Mm. And there's a company called CKLO, and they recreated a tram in Hong Kong to incorporate loads of these old style crafts that Hong Kong is known for. And it was a really beautiful um, sort of exhibition with neon lights and then some mm. birds in these little cages in the side of the inside of the tram. So I think that there are ways that it's been applied. And I think that there's, you know, shops, if you look at something like G.O.D., for example, they've taken a lot of old Hong Kong elements um, from Hong Kong culture and sort of repurposed it, reused it, to make it more modern and accessible to a younger population. What is G.O.D.? G.O.D. is a shop um, selling all sorts of household goods and clothes and things ah, like that. It's in, yes. it, there's lots around Hong Kong. Yeah, they, yeah, no, I know what you're yeah? talking about. Mm. And so, yeah, they, they, they incorporate elements of old Hong Kong and sort of make it more modern and applicable to, to modern day. There's also a guy called Billy Potts who has his own company and he, he loves old Hong Kong culture as well and he found an old scrapyard with you know, all of the upholstery from taxis that had been scrapped. So all of the leather seats that, you know, we're so familiar with in, in Hong Kong taxis. Hmm. And he made these into bags. Um, and it's just these elements of, of Hong Kong culture that, you know, it's, it's amusing, isn't it? And It is. And it, and it's, it's giving you a sweet feeling. And it's, it's a little bit of, I guess, a mix of nostalgia. With, it is, yeah. With something. I kind of used to think about nostalgia as... Um, purely emotional, kind of useless thing. Yeah. And now I'm starting to realize, I started to see examples of where it's actually our longing for lost culture. Mm. And then, just technically, inside culture there's technology. It's mm. kind of embedded in it. The way they, they did neon is, is, is a technology. The way they did this leathers or um, the way you do the cage or the way you make this tea is technology. Mm. Why it takes 10 years? If it's so simple, Mm. Why wouldn't someone just like, oh, okay, sure, let me do that, done. Mm. No, it's not. There's some depths to it. Part of it could be, I don't know, maybe our bodies are not that nimble to make the cage mm. in the proper way. You need to train yourself, right? Definitely, yeah. But there's another aspect of that, which is very deep connection and understanding of, of materials and maybe purpose of this cage, right? Why it needs to be the way it is. 
I find a lot of this in, now in, say, service design and user experience design when we try to understand how what we do transforms people's lives. And when I see a lot of crafts, I notice in that the reason why, why an apprentice needs to spend so much time is not only to, to create this mechanical skill, mm. but also to really connect with the subject very, very, very deeply to know how people use cage from the beginning yeah. to the very end. I mean, even in terms of the actual material itself, uh, I can already think of various interviews that I did, but um, the bamboo steamer maker, so, you know, the dim sum steamers I know, that I know, you get. I know what it is. Yeah, um, he said that, again, 10 years or so to become a master of dim sum steamers, right? But he said you have to connect to the bamboo. Every piece of bamboo is different, and only a master can know how to bend it properly without it breaking, without it splintering, without it causing any problems. And he said, you know, if, if me or you tried to do it right now, we would snap things. It would not fit right. It wouldn't be perfectly round. We'd cause problems that would break apart later. And it's all this, it's this connection and understanding of the materials that you're using. But going back to what you were saying about, you know, history and, and nostalgia and whether it's relevant or not, I think that it's so relevant. I think a lot of people, like you said, it could be perceived as, as useless sometimes, you know, like what's the point in studying the past? It's gone, it's done, right? But in the same way that when you deal with a person's psychology, you look back into their childhood to understand their current, their present situation. You look back at a, at a country, at a city's past, at a city's history, and get to know why and yeah. what has led them to this current state, to understand the current state and to appreciate it or, or just understand it more in order to move forward. I think it's it's hugely important. And I think culture is, is really the soul of any place, right? You take away cheese from France, you take away, you know, like, ice from Russia, you know, there's all sorts of ridiculous <laughs> things, vodka, you know, like, I mean, mm. these things just, while stereotype, they, they add certain elements to a place, they add a soul, they add an interest, and without that, you're just a, a historyless, like you said, with the place that you grew up in, where is the history, where is the... Where is the culture? It's just a place. You didn't have any attachment to it necessarily because perhaps you didn't know. What if you'd learned all about the history? Maybe you would feel a greater attachment to mm. it. But until you do, it's just a place. It, there's nothing. There's no meaning to it. Yeah. You know who I, I went to uh, trying to ask questions? I went to my a professor on um, economy. I was like, oh, so economy studying all the things, how everything can. Can you tell me how everything is connected <laughs> in our economy so I understand our culture and what we're doing here? It's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a big. She she did manage to answer. Yeah. But I, I think now looking back, I think what I was basically asking about culture because these things is incredibly intertwined. Like you can like I think it's it's a it's a disaster that we disconnect the things. We say mm. oh culture is in arts are separate from the way we our industry work, mm. but it's just not like fundamentally not true. Mm. Like your the way you do your industry, like it was born from your arts and crafts, right? Yeah. And to extend it did, it's actually better. Mm. So to extend to extend next layer of technology capable to get insights from a previous attempts to do the same things on the same topic and make them better, we all better off. Mm. But when we say, oh I was studying architecture and design and design school and our teachers were most of them were Soviet Union architects. And I was doing websites digital. Mm. And I remember myself, uh, 
19 years old, thinking, they have no idea what I'm doing. They, there's zero connection. There's <laughs> nothing interesting I can learn. What's the point? And me, uh, 25 or 30, I don't remember when, start reading architectural books and say, oh my God, it's so interesting. This is <laughs> like, I started to see the parallel between, oh, user experience design is about human experience and human scale and human, uh, what is human in, in relationship with this technology. Architects think the same. A good architect will be thinking about how a person will walk in, how a person will feel, what is the entry, how the street look like, what is inside my building, why does this building even exist? Mm. Right? There's so many questions around and a good architect will be asking all those questions, and they wrote a really good book about that. If only younger me will see this connection, I would be able to study and yeah. suck in so much more knowledge. And care about it more. <laughs> once you care about something, once you understand it, you suddenly are able to take in so much more, you know? Like, yeah. I don't know, if you're reading a history book about a, a country that you've never been to, sometimes difficult to connect. If you read a history book about the place that you're currently living in, if you learn about tea in a place that you're currently living in, boom, you're suddenly so much more connected to it. Yeah, you will walk in the street, Bonham Street, if you learn a little bit about that. You will look, look in the street and suddenly you'll say, oh, I know this, I know yeah. that, and then that. Oh, I, I have now, now I have an option to have this experience because yes. I know how to walk in and say, hey, can I have some tea? Mm. It's, it's opening so many doors. We have tendency to... You know, I'm too busy to know this stuff. Mm. Like, I need to focus. Like, I will dismiss all of this fluffy stuff and I focus like, okay, I need to study it in law or I need to study finance. And it has nothing to do with all of this. Birdcage is law. There's no connection. Yeah. Whatever. What is make us humans to constantly dismiss? What is actually make, by and large, what is creating this sunsetting? Why it need to be sunsetting? Why, why it cannot be, you know, respectful transition when... Maybe it doesn't make sense to, to make both cages at scale this way anymore. But it's need to be not only preserved, but it's need to be respected for what it is as a skill. Because inside this skill, there could be things which we don't know how to use right now. Yeah. But maybe they will be useful on Mars when we will build houses on Mars. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely with that. I feel like it needs to be preserved and respected in some aspect. It's not necessarily by somebody dedicating their entire lives to that job. I'm not saying I don't want that. If somebody wanted to go into that, fantastic. That. <laughs> yeah, if, if the birdcage man could get an apprentice that truly cared and truly wanted to learn, how fantastic. But I understand that it's a difficult one to choose with the knowledge that you probably wouldn't make very much money in, and you might have a bit of a tricky situation sustaining yourself, right? And perhaps it's more so people that have maybe finished their jobs, retired, that might want to learn this new skill, but then you have the problem of you got... To spend 10 years becoming a master. Unfortunately, it is impossible for you to write a book mm. and transfer this knowledge. Yeah. What you can do is transfer passion for that, interest for that, yeah. witness outcomes and witness people and stories. Mm. How might we make it possible for mm. someone much, much later to tap into that and learn what it takes to build a birdcage? Well, that's the problem because you can write an entire book on it. You can write everything that you need to know about birdcage making. But until you physically do it, you just don't know, right? And if I read the whole book and then tried to do it myself, I'm still going to be bad at it, you know? People don't learn like that. There's different ways people learn, but you certainly can't be good at it just from that way alone, right? Correct. So I feel like in order for us to be able to master it at a later stage, we'd need someone to have continuously be doing it and passing that skill and that knowledge down. 
somewhere in the world there are still people making bird cages by hand, right? It's. I think the sad thing is that Hong Kong does not protect or appreciate yeah. its old cultures enough to protect them. And that's why we're seeing that slice of culture slip away from this city. The way that you continue this appreciation or this love or this passion or this uh, practice of these old crafts is for the next generation to become apprentices or take over, yeah. right? That's the only real way. Or for them to appreciate it enough to find an interest in it. and Or create a system for someone to who have passion to yeah. actually make this final step, say, okay, I will exactly. do that. In whatever way it may be, right? So whilst I'm giving walking tours and things like that, which is great, but that typically with a slightly older crowd, right? Because mm -hmm. they that's the more nostalgic kind of feel and, and they sort of want to reminisce about old Hong Kong and they perhaps don't realize that there is still this element of old Hong Kong today. That's fantastic. But what I also do is I go to lots of schools, so primary schools, secondary schools, some universities, and I talk about the importance of Hong Kong culture and the importance of these old crafts and what they've contributed to Hong Kong culture and identity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that has been really great because if we can get the youngest generation of Hong Kong, the upcoming workers and people going into society, um, if we can get them interested in Hong Kong culture, then perhaps someone, if I talk to hundreds, thousands of people, perhaps somewhere in those, in that batch of people, somebody will find an interest in preserving or finding a way to uh, repurpose, upcycle, um, rejuvenate yeah. this old culture and these crafts. And somebody will find a way. I might not have the answer, but perhaps somebody in there does. Yes. And somebody in there may find an interest in these and in some way continue it. You know, there are elements of Hong Kong um, government and Hong Kong societies that do appreciate these old cultures. There's a society called the Intangible Cultural Heritage Society. It's a long, it's a long phrase, but okay. they have basically identified some 200 items which are uniquely Hong Kong and um, uniquely culturally Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And it's everything from egg tarts to fish balls to you know, um, antique furniture. There's all sorts of different things which are Hong Kong intangible cultural heritage items, right? And there's a list that you can find, um, which is fantastic, but I'm just trying to celebrate that list, essentially. So I'm working on a couple of other things now, which is all a celebration of those, those items on the list in some way or another. Thank you for doing this. No problem. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> and not only this, but your work. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>